welcome to the show. My guest today is the very talented and amazing Ryan Roxy. So Ryan's had quite the career from early bands like Candy and Electric Angels uh, to working with Gilby Clark and Slash and of course being the guitarist for Alice Cooper. So he's got some great stories like Brett Michaels saving his guitar, auditioning a famous singer for Slash's Snake Pit. Plus, I like hearing his insight on success and fame, and he's also got a podcast of his own, so I'll shut up and let him tell the rest. Yeah, so tell me about that. Um, You're born and raised in the Bay Area, and you grew up an Oakland Raider fan, and you actually, did you play Little League Baseball with John Madden's son? That's pretty cool. Wow, that's that's deep. You've gone deep inside down the... uh rabbit hole of Ryan Rock. Yeah, no, I, I tell me it's, it's fascinating. I grew up in the suburbs of Oakland, a place called Pleasanton. And it so happened that the head coach of the Raiders during the seventies, during the heyday, John Madden lived in the same housing track as my family did. We all lived in, God dang, what was it? Highland Oaks. Uh, hmm. are, have we started? Are yeah, we this is going? it. This is the, this oh, is the wow, show. Okay. Why not? Damn. All right. I was, I was waiting for, well, I see it was recording now or so we are going. Yeah. I mean, it's just got right out of the gate. You, you, you give me I like a, to start at the beginning. That's kind of like the beat. You grew up in Oakland. I don't want to, I mean, cause that's, that area has changed a lot over the years. So just, Oh my God, it's changed so much. The housing prices. I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we moved there, when we were first, I guess I moved there when I was two years old, so I didn't really know much about the property values back then. Sure. But the thing was, the houses were like affordable because it was just a little, it was a suburb. It was a cow town, really. And uh, the sort of track housing that I lived in, the track housing unit that that we all lived in with cul-de-sacs and little, you know, ways, Applewood Court and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Yeah, the, the bunch of the Oakland Raiders lived there. Gene Upshaw lived right up the street. He lived in a nice house though. He lived off of Hill Road and that was kind of the nice place. But uh, John Madden, who was a head coach at the time, which probably didn't pay that much more than what my dad was making at the time. It was kind of, back then football was kind of like a working man's game. It, right. it wasn't what it's like today. So his, uh, his kids went to the same high school I did and same uh, junior high and we started playing little league. Um, and I believe John, uh, Mike, I think was his older brother, Joey. Cause there was, Joey was the one I played, uh, little league with, but then I remember Mike Madden, who was also John Madden's son, hmm. a little bit older. Uh, he was my football flag football coach in, uh, literally like fifth grade. Weird. I still remember to this day. I I, I never really spoke of this memory, but but it does kind of come back to me every once in a while. I made this insane catch, like it (laughs) it was like it was flag football. So it was like already you know no helmets, right? Padding, nothing. But we were still kind of smashing each other, uh, you know, without the pads and um. You know, the flags didn't mean all that much, but something happened where we had to go for a two-point conversion or something. And 
the quarterback threw the ball. I was playing wide receiver and the quarterback threw it. It hit off the shoulder pad of the opposing uh, defensive back. And I sort of caught it and then just fell back into the end zone for either it was two points or it was the winning touch score touchdown. I'm not sure what it was, but I just remember John Madden's son going, Damn, what a catch. And, and from then I, <laughs> wow. you know, at that point in fifth grade, I thought I could, you know, maybe someday play for the Oakland Raiders. And uh, then, you know, my body didn't think the same thing because I don't think I grew that much oh. since. So, grade, so. so then music. Yeah. So music. So you get into music. You, you came from a musical family. Your your father played the trumpet. And I thought this was, I thought this was interesting. Your mom played the drums. That seems kind of progressive. Yeah. For, I don't know many moms that played drums. I think she was, was she in marching band or something? She was in the marching band. Yeah, she was on a, she was on the snare drum. And I had to work my way up when I joined school band because I started um, on the marching timpani, which is the heaviest friggin' thing ever in the world to uh, carry around for this. You know, we used to do the halftime shows. And that, that was the one thing about my high school growing up in the Bay Area is that we had a... Um, a music teacher that was very revered as sort of this marching band halftime show type of choreography. He put all that stuff together and we did parades and stuff like that. So like I, in, in freshman year, I started out uh, on the um, marching timpani, which was so, so, so heavy. But then I kind of worked my way up all the way to the uh, front line snare drum. Because if you were on the snare line, you know, one of the five snare drummers, then you were kind of like the shit of the of the marching band. But, you know, in, at the end of the day, we had to wear those really uh, yeah. Q-tip looking type uh, hats and you never really were the shit. <laughs> no. So, and you wanted to be more like a rock star. You were into, you know, Peter Frampton and Cheat Trick. So you bolt to LA at 17. And you couldn't even yeah. get into the clubs, um, so you're hanging out at the uh, the Rainbow, like the parking lot. That's where the party would be after. And this sounds amazing. Absolutely. You said like Rat and Motley Crue and the guys from Dio's band would just be yeah. hanging out. We would. Uh, that was the thing because I was playing guitar before I left for LA. I was, you know, playing in my own bands, and I had a band up in. Um, the Bay area called fair warning. And you can tell we were heavily influenced by Van Halen and, you know, I, I would do it all. I, I'd wear the, you know, the knee pads and the, you know, the striped shirts and whatever Edward Van Halen was wearing at that moment, you know, <laughs> David Lee Roth with, it, with okay. his, you know, bandanas around the knees or whatever. I was doing the same. So, and the rest of the band was as well. So, uh, we were able to get a little bit of, of uh, traction or at least experience. And we did some shows with Joe Satriani's band up in the Bay Area, hmm. opening up for them. He was in a, a power pop band at the time called The Squares. Hmm. And so it, it was a cool band that he had together. It was, it was like, imagine Van Halen meets the police. And that was Joe Satriani's first band. It that sounds amazing. Cool. And we would we would open up for them, and um, so we, I, I knew what I wanted to do. Yeah. I just didn't know, you know, if I could do it up there in the Bay Area. It turns sure. out that there were so many other bands that that ended up doing it in such a big way. You know, there was such a, a thrash scene that was going on, and and um, 
you know, as Metallica rose up from there. It, but but I I just went down as soon as I could uh, for a number of reasons. But you know, the main was to pursue music. The main one was was just to get get out of the Bay Area, get out of my world where I was, and jump into a new world with music. And so. I got to dive down into Los Angeles at a very cool time. It was right around a transitional time because it was the, I, I came down right when those bands like Motley and Rat and, you know, Ronnie, Ronnie James Dio, um, Vivian Campbell was in the lead guitar player in that band at that time. All these like rock and roll, like icons, you know, they were so big at that point. But they were just getting onto that superstardom level, and then there was almost like a reset. So it was right before mm-hmm. the, uh, hair metal scene. It was kind of the second cool. wave. You said like Poison and Faster Pussycat, and you kind exactly. of like opened for a lot of those guys. Yeah, yeah. The band that I got in uh, at the very first band out of the out of the gate was a band called Candy, who had come from those from playing with bands like Wasp and Rat, and then that band happened to have Gilby Clark in the band as right. well. Didn't they and, pick uh, you because you guys looked the same? You had similar jackets and hair. Yeah, so like, yeah, you, you're, like you'll that. work. Very much like that uh, Brady Bunch episode of Johnny Bravo. I fit the suit, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I kind of okay. fit the, 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 the black other jacket was bought from the same store that all of us, we all shopped for our black hair dye uh, at the same, you yeah. know, sort of beauty supply uh, store. We all bought our Aquanet, the same unscented can at the same drugstore. So yeah, we all kind of fit together. And then luckily all of our musical back backgrounds and our musical influences really meshed well together. Gilby being from the Midwest and being Ohio, he had a bit more uh, of that punk rock, a little bit like Pretenders meets, you know, Johnny Johnny Thunders meets the Ramones, and then uh, me and Jonathan. Jonathan had originally the bass player and, and principal songwriter had come from the Bay Area as well, so we had a lot of that Bay Area sort of great music, like huge spectrum of music, a lot of different types of music uh, for to use as influences. And so we had that. And then John Schubert, the drummer, the visual timekeeper, if you will, he was, uh, you know, born and raised in L.A. So he had all those great L.A. influences and it all meshed together um, because we liked really heavy guitars. We liked really large hair like Motley Crue, early Motley Crue, Too Fast for Love was like such a big album for me, such a big influence. And uh, there was we all loved Cheap Trick. Mm-hmm. So we all had that sort of pop sensibility, but liking it with a, a bit more of a heavier or grittier type of guitar tone. Yeah. So how did, um, you said that Ricky Rackman, uh, the host of Headbangers, future host of Headbangers Ball at the time auditioned for Candy as a singer. That sounds interesting. And then, so how did you two become friends? Because usually when I don't get the job, I don't become friends with the person that, you know, turned me down. Ricky was such a cool personality that, you know, you couldn't not be friends with him uh, after that audition. And he did a great job at the audition. It wasn't like that, that, you know, oh, you don't cut it. No, Mm. he was he was really good. We just at the time were going through a lot of auditions with that band. And I remember, you know, when we ended up deciding on a singer, I think we did one or two shows with with that singer 
And then it was like, wait a second. This is, it really works when Gilby's back in the band because Gilby wasn't there for those auditions. Oh. He had started to say like, well, you know, I think I might want, want to try and do something on my own. So that's when Gilby came back and Gilby became our singer for Candy during that uh, sort of second wave of Candy. But uh, Ricky Rackman, he is, you know, headbangers ball. A lot of yeah. people know him from that. But, you know, shortly after he tried out for uh, Candy, he started this club called the Cat House. With yeah. Down. And that just became sort of like the spawning ground for all of hair metal. He really did create an, an environment, an atmosphere that uh, was really uh, instrumental in that whole movement, I feel. And I was lucky to be like right there, like by his side on so many of those historical Tuesday nights because, yeah, we just became friends. We became That's awesome. you know, real good buds and um, <laughs> I actually got almost arrested in his... Uh, in his red Camaro one night because I borrowed it to go because I'd forgotten something at my apartment. I'd forgotten like a pair of pants. I was, I had loaned, I, I, I had someone had loaned me and I said, Oh, I'll give you back your pants. So he goes, Oh, just take my car. And on the way from, cause he was DJing at a club that night. It wasn't cat house. It was a different club. I think it might've been, what was it? Uh, was that night at the Roxy or um, it used to be, it was one of those clubs that was right up on Sunset. Okay. And they they actually made a movie about it. Uh hmm. Night at the Roxbury. It was that that club, oh. that 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 sort of area, that venue. And so I drove that to the apartment in his red Camaro. And of course, if you drive a red car in Los Angeles and you have hair that looks like mine at the, that that time, and um yeah, like completely sober, everything's fine, straight and narrow. It's just that I'm borrowing a car. That happens to be non-registered and could be stolen. <laughs> oh, whoops. <laughs> so I end up in a holding tank at the oh, uh, Hollywood Police Department and Ricky has to come and bail me out because it's a big, he had just bought the car from this girl who had oh. unregistered the car. Ricky hadn't registered it yet. So at that, that little window of time, it okay. was literally a stolen car. So yeah, t speaking so. of stolen, tell me the story about uh, when your guitar was stolen and how you somehow you come to meet Brett Michaels through this. Oh wow, God! How do you know that story? That's a that's a really undercover. Yeah, Brett, I, I do always have Brett Michaels to thank for finding my. Um, it was a red, just Ibanez Destroyer Two, uh, Candy Apple Red. It, I brought it down for the Bay Area. Um, it was kind of like a, a copy of an Explorer, right? And um, it had humbucker pickups. That's the reason why I liked it so much. And um, I think they made blue ones and they made red ones. And I and I actually still own a blue one. But that red one uh, got stolen out of the back of my my truck. You know, I, and I just left it there for I again one of those times where I just I'm gonna run up get this something and then come right back down. And when I came back down, there's a broken glass and you know someone had. So, so who do you go to, to find this, you know? And I'm with some, I'm with a buddy of mine and he's like, we got to go to poison. They, they know everybody in this town now because they, because they've been promoting the, the hell out of themselves. So they happen to live right across the street. We lived, we lived right behind the Grauman theater in Hollywood. 
um, at the place called the Madison, and they lived at the Orange Towers. So it's conveniently right across the street. And um, so we go into this apartment, and it's literally like a <laughs> it's a crack house minus the crack because they weren't nobody was doing crack, but you might think it was because there was no furniture. It was just mattresses on the wall, and there was basically lyrics and graffiti on the you know on the inside of the uh, apartment uh, walls. And it was the whole band was living there at that time. And um, it was before they, they actually had CC in the band because their original guitar player from, uh, from, I think Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania had to go back. Yeah. He, he went back. He, him, Matt he Smith, I think it was girlfriend got pregnant. They had a baby. I don't know what the whole deal was, but uh, I'm sitting there and Brett's, I remember sitting on this mattress. He's like, oh, tell me about the guitar. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll put some phone calls out, and this is a back of the time where there was an actual phone. Sure, and they I, I don't know how they could afford a phone, and it must have been the only bill that they had because it certainly weren't paying for any sort of cable or any sort of. And no, you no said like their place was like you kind of lived in a shithole, but their place made your place look nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I kind of felt a little bit privileged to, to, to live right across the street. I, you know, I lived on the eleventh floor. We, you know, I had a couple roommates, and we lived in this place called Super Thrills. Maybe it was twelve oh five. I lived in a couple apartments in that building. Yeah. But getting back to the Orange Tower, I, I remember Brett just saying, "Yeah, I think we can find it because you know we do know a lot of people." And so, literally within two or three phone calls. Some guy was on it. Some one of one of his buddies had had heard that huh. this guy was like um, trying to pawn a guitar that he had just gotten, and uh, so he turned us on to the to the thief. And you know, the buddy of mine that I was with at the time, he he was you know he just wanted to kill the guy. And I said, no, 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 let's just get the guitar back. So the guy ends up handing us our guitar back in two different pieces because he had dismantled it. Mm. And he'd already started to dismantle and part it out. But, you know, at the end of the day, Brett Michaels got me my guitar back. Yeah. Eventually got put back together. And, it, and when I joined Candy, it got painted pink because that was the one thing. Another thing about that band, Candy, we all had pink guitars. Gilby had a pink Les Paul. I had the pink Destroyer. Uh, Jonathan had a pink Thunderbird bass. And uh, our drummer had a pink uh, drum kit. So yeah. it was pretty, you know, I don't know pink yeah <laughs> i guess you could say right but but, uh, but so you're Michaels, in I, re I still remember to this day brett michaels playing me some of those yeah i was gonna ask you about that so he's playing you the look at uh, look what the cat dragged in demos and their guitar player went to pennsylvania why didn't you say hey maybe i should join this band i mean you could have been the guitarist for poison i don't know if i could have i think the the opportunity was there i'm you know i don't know it was one of those situations where I, I was already in a band at that point with a right. guy named Jeff Scott. And Jeff Scott was signed to, um, was it Epic Records? And Epic Records was the home of Cheap Trick. So mm. I was by, you know, six degrees of separation, I was on the same label as Cheap Trick in, okay. in a way. So I was playing guitar and I, and, Actually, through Jeff Scott, that's how the guys in Candy all came about because they knew, um, they knew Jeff and they knew this guy, guitar player okay. that kind of looked like them. And a lot of the Jeff Scott fans had said, "Hey, man, you look, look like you should be in Candy." So that's how that all ended working out. But with Poison, 
you know, I do wonder about that every once in a while because CC and I have the exact same uh, influence as well. We're both cheap trick disciples. Mm-hmm. We both love Rick Nielsen. We love his style. We love his songwriting. And, um, but I'm, you know, look, things worked out great for Poison and and for I'm, you. I'm pretty damn happy with the way my journey went. It, it, yeah. It's gone, so, you know. Right. It's gone left, right, uh, U.S., Europe. I mean, I've been doing it for a while, and I still get to say I'm doing it, which I'm happy about. But honestly, you know, Poison is a great, um, a great band to be a part of, I think, because they share a lot of the same influences that I did. And I always thought that Brett was super nice. And obviously I owe him for uh, finding my guitar. Yeah. But so can anyway, so back to the, uh, your journey. So candy kind of breaks up because Gilby goes off and uh, starts kills for thrills. And then you guys form the electric angels with a different singer. And I thought this was kind of smart. You moved to New York since, you know, there's so many bands, rock bands in LA, you know, probably a different, you know, a different scene, try something different. And it worked, you get signed, but then tell me about this. Was it true? Bruce? I don't know if it was out of, but I, the, the move to New York, I don't know what was out of ingenuity. It was more out of desperation because but we it had worked. really, yeah. yeah, we had really run the course for, uh, being an LA band. Mm-hmm. You know, during that scene, we were, we were doing shows with every single band. It seemed every single week would get a deal. And every time we would make a demo, they would say, oh, man, we really like it. But do you have one more? Just one more. So basically getting interest but passed on by every single label, but still being able to uh, get a following together and grow a following and do all these really cool opening shows. Like we were the support act for almost every cool British band that would come into town. You know, whether it was at Scream, which was another club like um, like Cat House that really, it was like, if you could think of Scream, Dale Gloria was the uh, owner of Scream. And she would put us on these amazing shows that had bands like Balam and the Angel. They had, uh, you know, Jane's Addiction would play there quite often. They, mm. That was a bit more indie Okay, uh, Scream was because it was located downtown. It was a little bit more of the indie rock, but it was still had, you know. Lots of heavy guitars and lots of goth, you know, the damned we opened up for as well. Uh, one of the biggest shows Electric Angels opened up for at John Anson Ford Theater was uh, Zodiac Mind Warp. And so we we had a bunch of cool shows. It's just that we never got, you know, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. I never got that big break. Yeah. Saying yeah. with Electric Angels. So we said, you know what? Here's this opportunity for us to go. Um, east when everyone's coming west let's let's try it because we because we know what's for us here we don't know what's for us there and within three shows we got signed by one of the labels that had already passed on us right (laughs) a different ar rep though or something yeah different a and r guys yeah completely different staff it was the same it was the same label but yeah they had passed on us and Los Angeles, and then we got a record deal um, again with one of those really cool um, support gigs. We were uh, we were the support act for Dogs Demore and Mother Love Bone too, right? And Mother Love Bone yeah. was the middle act, and I think the record label came to see 
the middle act thinking that we were mother love bone. Oh. When they found out that we weren't, they were like, oh, well, we really liked you guys a lot. Can we sign you? Oh, so it, nice. again, Brett Michaels, thank you for the guitar. Mother love bone. Thank you for the record. deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so wait, was it true? You were managed by Bruce Kulik of, of kiss for a little while. And then, we weren't managed by Bruce, but Bruce actually produced a round of our demos. Okay. And, but so did you and, have a song called You Put the X in Sex? Because Kiss later had a song called Let's Put the X in Sex. Did they steal that from you guys? Coincidental. A coincidental. A okay. Yeah. It, that's where we figured out um, one of Gene Simmons' many uh, famous quotes over the years, but uh, it's truth. You cannot copyright a song title. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't sound the same, but yeah, it's the it similar. It doesn't sound the same, but it was very, very curious of how we put out um, a song called You Put the X in Sex, and then literally three months later, or however long it was, you know, Bruce plays obviously the the demos to the to the band. This is what I've been working on. Oh, this is cool. Um they put out a song called Let's Put the X in Sex. So, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's very spinal depth, but it's that, uh, that little twist. It's just a little okay, twist. A little you know? twist. But another thing that was kind of interesting about uh, Electric Angels was John Bon Jovi was a fan. And he kind of stole something, too. I don't know if this was a tribute or whatever, yeah, but his song, I mean, Better Roses, more, it's, yeah, a, yeah, it's from your song, song, Our Better called. Roses Has Become a Bed of Nails, from your song, True Love and, only, and Other fa- Fairy Tales. Yes, yes. The song, it was the ballad off the album, and I'm really, really proud of that song. Tony Visconti was the producer of that uh, album, and he did such a great string arrangement on that song that I feel everybody should, you know, give it a fair shake. I mean, God, if we would have, if we would have um, had a quarter amount of the success that Bon Jovi had with that song, yeah, uh, with his song his version of it or his line of it is again, it was just a line of a song. He sure. was clever. And you know, Jonathan Daniel or, or uh, bass player is, he's very clever guy. I mean, he always has been, and he remains to this day being very clever. He's a manager now and he sure. manages bands like green day. He manages, you know, panic at the disco. He manages, um, like train. Did he manage train? train? Yeah. Yeah, and um, I know so, I'm sure there's there's more bands that I'm right. not mentioning now, but yeah, he's he's done really well for himself, and you know, like I said, his his songwriting, his lyrics were always uh, noteworthy, absolutely, and, uh, and it definitely had some influence on songs for me later when I was went off to do my own solo stuff. Yeah, so before you do the solo stuff, um, Electric Angels, it doesn't work out, but um, did I hear this right? Were you in a band? There's a band in Seattle. I'm from Seattle. I grew up in Seattle in the 90s. There was a band called Sweetwater. Did I hear you say you were in that band or you tried out? What's the story there? Because I love that band. I was I did not know you were a member of it. Sweetwater was, um, I met them right when they, the tail end of them recording uh, Super Friends, which was produced by, by Dave Jordan. And I was able to get into that band they wanted to add a guitar player because the guitar player that they, uh, the lead guitar player that they had had um, for that album, for the first album, they, you know, they were friends, but he, he wasn't playing with them, you know, so much anymore. And they had sort of whittled it down to a four piece, but then they, they wanted that extra guitar player. And um, 
I, I related to those guys so well. I've met them down in Los Angeles and went to the studio and I'm listening to these mixes that they're playing of super friends. I'm going, this album is really, really good. Mm-hmm. And they, they invited me up to, to Seattle. They said, why don't we come up and jam? And if it work, if the jam works out good, we have a gig because we could do the gig as a four piece or, you know what, if you know the stuff, maybe you can just, you know, step in with us. And I said, you know, I always want to be, you know, over-prepared when I go for a gig, if, 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 if at all possible, you know? So I really studied the, the songs. I really got into it and I was ready for the gig. So the audition basically turned into a gig and there was, um, I guess, I guess it was a year or two years we were doing it. Hmm. Um, I would fly up to, uh, from Los Angeles, I would fly up to Seattle and do these sort of weekend warrior gigs. Oh. And they would play all around, like in Bellingham and all these college places, right? Yeah. And uh, and had such a great following. People loved their, their music. And then when Super Friends came out, the radio really supported it. So it was really cool to be part of a of a different, sort of scene but but a scene nonetheless because i'd been part of that hair metal scene right the, you know during the gnr days and the la guns and faster pussycat days but then to go up and catch this uh, sort of wave of the end of the sort of grunge era in that sense because there was i remember remember bands like presidents of the united states yeah uh posies all these bands were like really, you know, hitting on all cylinders at that mm-hmm. point. And, um, of course, you know, Soundgarden and, and Nirvana had taken off crazy. Like, so super, uh, super friends and, um, Sweetwater, uh, the band was at that time, uh, managed by Susan Silver management. So that helped out, you know, who also managed, managed, um, Soundgarden at the time. So all those things kind of worked out. And then when it came time to right around the time that they were going to go do a, I think they were, they did a, a super long sort of van tour across the U S with, who was it? Um, some really credible indie bands and stuff. And okay. I got, I got the audition for Alice. Oh, right the same time. So, it, or not? It wasn't the audition, but it was it was like what was it? it was right around ninety six. Yeah. So, it was, oh, okay. Yeah, I got I got that whole opportunity to get in with Alice Cooper. So, I had to make that choice, and um, the choice, you know, again, so many people saying, you know, uh, here's this new band, you know, your relatively new band. Sweetwater had been around in Seattle for a while, but people were just starting to hear about them why are you going to play with Alice Cooper? And, I, and again, I just, one of those things I, I, from my roots, I, I just felt that Alice, he had a lot of gas in the tank left. Sure. And when you have albums like Alice has had over the years and you see the desire that he has to, you know, to go out and still do it, it was, it was definitely the right decision that I made. For so, sure. But so but meanwhile, at the same time, yeah, I, I, I I always have a soft spot in my heart for for Sweetwater because they're they're the greatest guys in the world. And they made that album is so great. I and love the it. Yeah. Made you know the albums that they've made subsequent to that are really great as well. So, um, you know, it, it's Sweetwater is just one of those bands that I'm was happy to be a part of their 
you know, yeah, legacy probably most people don't know who they are, but I was, I grew up in Seattle. They play them on the radio all the time. And I had that sweet, uh, super friends album. I loved it. But, uh, so meanwhile, your friend Gilby, tell me this story, how I love the way he tells you that he gets the guns and roses gig. He doesn't just call you up and say, tell you, he kind of does it in a clever way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He well because we'd always call each other, you know, we, we kept tight after playing for so many years together. Um, and then we'd moved to New York and he was in Los Angeles. So we'd always call each other. If we had a gig, if we were on a tour and say, Hey, I got a gig in, you know, when we came in with electric angels, we'd always invite him down to whatever gig we had in town. We'd play like the palace in Hollywood. We'd open up for hurricane or maybe we were on tour with danger, danger. And we played, you know, a, 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 it would always be a club, a bigger club or something like that if we could cross paths. So he, so he gives us me a call. He goes, Hey man, I'm, I'm coming into town tomorrow night and I got a gig. And I'm like, really, where are you playing? He goes, Oh, you know, a place called Madison square garden. (laughs) 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 And, and the thing was, it's like, this was before everybody had an Instagram account where they could Twitter 10 times, you know, you know, and, and the, and, whenever you had any sort of news, it just went right out there. It took time to trickle and, mm-hmm. you know, people find out about it and stuff. So I was one of the first people to find out that, uh, you know, he was actually in it because his first gig was the night before in, uh, Boston at the Boston garden. So, you know, he goes, yeah, I'm up, I'm up in Boston right now playing the Boston garden in guns and roses. And I was like, Oh man, that's the perfect band for you, dude. I'm so <laughs> happy that you got it because it, it is the perfect band for, yeah. for Gilby. It's like, it's, it's has all the same influences that he grew up. It's, it's heavy stuff, but it's also has that, you know, that punk, punk rock yeah. attitude. And that was what I feel, um, was always the charm of the band. It's, it's what, uh, what kept them from, being, you know, a little overboard heavy metal. It kept them that it kept them kept them that heavy rock and roll metal sort of right in that gray area, which is the perfect area to be in. Because at the end of the day, they also had songs that you could would stick in your head and hum along, and Slash would write riffs that would you know sort of you'd wake up and you could still hear it in your head. So. You know, oh, yeah. that was the that was a really great band for Gilby, and subsequently a great band that I've always had some sort of connection with in one way or another. Whether it's going back playing with Gilby, or then later years playing with Slash. Yeah, and so, but that first uh, s- uh, solo record that Gilby did, Pawn Shop Guitars, I loved that. Re- I still love that record. I think it's brilliant. I think it's super underrated. And you got to play on that and tour with him. So this is interesting because people, you probably think that, you know, your first big shows were with Alice, but you actually got to do some pretty big shows with Gilby. Like you toured South America and opened up for Aerosmith and playing soccer stadiums. That sounds amazing. One of the, yeah, one of the biggest, one of the biggest shows I've ever done to this day was opening up uh, with Gilby Clark band and Gilby Clark and the Tequila Brothers opening up for um, Aerosmith the week that... Gilby's album, I think the single had Dead Flowers out and Axel sings on that track. Yeah. It was released in um, 
Argentina, and it goes to number one. So basically, Gilby hmm. has a number one song. Didn't know that. And we're the support act for Aerosmith. Wow. I mean, it's a one-two punch. And um, yeah, that was it was a sold-out uh, football. I say football now that I live in Europe, but a sold-out soccer stadium. And um, yeah, it was super memorable. I mean, I've, I've obviously been very thankful and lucky to play as many uh, big gigs with Alice over the years. But that one was my first sort of monster gig and uh yeah so how did alice find you then is it through gilby or was there some other connection okay because originally he wanted you and gilby right there was an idea floating around that um alice would like to have two guitar players that already knew each other that could play off each other which me gilby and i always played well together we'd been in bands for years whether it was candy or then his solo band who we played you know toured many, many years together. And it I think it would have worked out great. It would have been definitely a more rock and roll, sort of sleazy type early Alice Cooper lineup type of vibe. Um, unfortunately, Gilby couldn't do the, um, the gig because he was still tied to his own record label that he was mm. um, with at the time. And so they just did a uh, sort of a call out for uh, auditions. And... I, Gilby gave me the green light. He gave me the thumbs up. He said, dude, you got to go get this gig. This is some, one of those gigs that's, uh, you know, sort of like a, a game changer. Mm-hmm. And, um, so at the time I knew that Reb Beach was at the audition and he just had nailed it. And Alice really liked him because he, he wasn't just a great player. He's a great personality, but, you know, super funny ass guy and tells amazing stories. And a lot of times it's, it's more about the hang, you know, it's about the, it's about the camaraderie of, of being in a band. It's about being able to, to sit, you know, for eight hours with the same guys and gals, you know, in a band situation in a dressing room. Cause you're only really on stage for what an hour, hour and a half every single night. So it's the other 22 and a half hours that you have to learn how to hang with the other people. And, uh, Reb was great at that, and I filled the role of like the old school guy, the the original band, sort of more just laying down some chords. And when I had a solo, I'd make it really legato and try to make it as classic rock and seventies as possible. Then when the shredding stuff came in, the shredder type of songs that Alice has, you know, as well in his repertoire, um, Reb just nailed it. And it's to this day we've always had that sort of. Um, uh, understanding with the guitar players that are in the lineup of the Alice Cooper band, like everybody knows their role. Mm-hmm. And although I'm, I'm very comfortable and happy to play a, a, a shredding type of solo. Um, I know that, you know, Nita Strauss's strength is that, you yeah. know, that's exactly what she's amazing. So who decides like, cause now it's not no, just, you, it's three guitar players. We have three guitar players in the current lineup with Tommy Hendrickson, Nita Strauss, and myself. Yeah. And and it's really no decision that has to be made. We just kind of know as soon as we hear the song, we go, yeah, this is definitely a Nita solo. Or this is a Tommy solo. This is very rock and roll. This, is, this has that sort of old school, just, you know, whether it's Chuck Berry or whether you want to say the little Johnny Thunders vibe to it. Yeah, that that's Tommy. Or this is original band stuff. This, is, this has Roxy on it. Hmm. So, I mean... And Alice, at the same point, he loves guitar solos. So he's one of those guys that says, yeah, dude, everyone gets a solo. Everyone gets a solo. <laughs> nice. It's like the Oprah Winfrey of being in a rock band. <laughs> because, 
That's Ina awesome. Gets a solo. Roxy gets a solo. Everybody gets a solo. <laughs> so when you toured with Motley Crue in the Alice Cooper band, was that one of the highlights for you? I mean, you were a big fan of Crue and you said they'd come and hang out in the dressing room. Like what memories oh, yeah. do you have of those those days. Our dressing room on that whole entire tour was basically Switzerland. We were like, you know, everybody, the, the band Motley had four different tour buses. They had, they would travel, you know, they had their, everybody had their own handler and then they'd come together before the show. They'd all meet, they'd get on the stage, they'd rock it. And then they'd come off, they'd do their meet and greets and all that kind of stuff. And then they'd go on to their respective vans. But before hmm. the show, you know, Every, being that every band member in that in Motley had their own dressing room, they wanted a place to hang because that's where it's what it's all about. You know, at the yeah. end of the day, it's about the hang. And the Alice Cooper dressing room, the sort of band dressing room, was was sort of the safe spot for everybody to come in. So it would be very very common for you know Tommy and Nikki and and Vince or you know and Mick to, to, to like each pop in you know for a little while. Hey, what's happening tonight? Okay, cool. And then then just you know go off to their own dressing room and you know do their thing. But uh, yeah, so crazy. I'm just totally picturing the Wayne's world. Just yeah, come on in, hang out, like. Hang out with Alice Cooper. Oh, okay. The fact that we got to do the whole tour for twice, I think. We did two runs with them. Yeah. And then do the Australian run with them, the Australian leg with them, do the European leg with them, then do the U.S. twice with them was a real... Um, was a real treat because it wasn't like this, okay, we got this one show. No, no, this, this is a whole tour. You get to know the band, you get to know, uh, the set. We definitely knew the set. They knew our set and we knew their set by the end of the tour. And, um, just a lot of cool experiences. Although those one-offs that you do, um, with bands and you're lucky to do ones, you know, every once in a while with like a super group, like queen, those are super memorable as well. Like mm. just our last sort of tour since everything stopped uh, was the Australian tour. And we did a show with Queen down in uh, Sydney in the beginning of 2020, right before everything shut down. And uh, that was still, you know, to this day, one of those bucket list memorable gigs, you know, being able to play in front of that. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, speaking of bucket list, I mean, you did some other stuff too in the nineties, like dad's porno mag and you did the seventies cover band glam nation, but slash you got to tell me about this. I'm a huge guns and roses fan. Um, you were, you played on the ain't life grand album. And, um, I heard you say that you guys tried out several singers before you decided on Rod Jackson. Is there anyone memorable that, that you tried out at that point? Do you remember? Um, wow. Um, what was the band with the chainsaw? Jesse, Jesse, Jesse James Dupree. Yes. From yes. Jackal. Really from Jackal. That was the band. Yeah. Great singer, man. What, and, and really had a good handle on the songs that we did. Um, the thing was, I mean, when Rod Jackson came in, he was just, he immediately fit all, he ticked all the boxes. He had soul, he had vibe, he had a little bit of Kravitz in him, but he also had a lot of, you know, um, just, just pure power in his voice, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, he had, so, so, but I do remember Jesse being really, really, um, a great tape because he sang on some of the same songs and the early hmm. songs that we demoed up, you know, a lot of the singers would sing 
like, what's your version? We wouldn't okay. give them any melody lines. We wouldn't give them any lyrics. We just write your lyrics and melodies oh. to this song. And um, I remember him doing it. Um, who else tried out? There was, I mean, there was, um, I believe we had some female vocalists try hmm. out as well. I mean, do you, are you familiar with Beth Hart? Mm-mm. Um, credible voice, you know, just really, again, just that strong, strong ass voice. And, uh, who else? Um, yeah, it was, it was a cool, uh, <laughs> uh, the thing was right when we did find Rod and or Rod found us or Rod just kind of walked in from, I think he actually walked from Santa Monica at the time, um, because, you know, he was living out there by the beach and he said, yeah, I just took a walk. I just thought I'd make it all the way over to Beverly Hills. He comes wow. walking in from the streets and he just didn't, didn't leave. He didn't have to He huh. stayed there for the next couple of years, you know? Yeah. And, so, uh, and you're, you're working with slash and, uh, he's kind of like your boss, but you said he, you're, you're, what'd you say? You call it like slash time. Like he would kind of start later. So <laughs> is he like the coolest yeah. boss ever? Like I, I would just, that's gotta be weird. No, Alice Cooper is the coolest boss. ever. Okay. No, so no, slash no, is the, second the, coolest. If you want cool bosses that, that, you know, Alice Cooper is, is the coolest because yeah. Well, he takes all the same boxes that slash does as far as being mega talented. And, and, you know, I could learn a lot from obviously slash is, probably one of the best guitar teachers I ever had over the years. Oh. And, and not that he ever like sat down and he said, okay, this is how you tune. No, hmm. I just would watch, observe him play. He'd observe me play. We'd play together. We'd work out the parts together. And that's how you get better as a musician and a guitarist. So I feel that, um, you know, Slash has all these great uh, qualities as far as, you know, i inspired by you know to, to help me get to be a better musician but he's horrible and i don't know if it's tr- true today but he was always horrible on time because we'd have we'd have a band call at 12 noon every single day at snake pit studios and there would be times at around 3 p.m <laughs> or maybe four maybe getting into the early afternoon, early evening, late afternoon, he would come down from his own house because we practiced at his house huh. at Snake Pit Studios. So he would make it down there and he oh, sorry guys. I'm sorry, man. But, but then again, we'd make up for it because we'd end up jamming until like about, you know, 11, 12 at night. Uh. And then we'd go, uh, you know, probably eat at the rainbow at that time. He'd say, dudes, I was late today. See, I, I got this one at the rainbow. That's so. interesting because I always thought when Guns N' Roses would go on late, I always thought I always blamed Axel. But maybe it was Slash or maybe it was both of them. But that's kind of funny. Yeah, I, I I think there might have been a little rub off of Axel because I, I think mm. Axel's notoriously been the one. Um, I'll tell you who's not late and ever been late for a gig is, is Coop. Really? Alice has yeah. never been. Yeah. And it is a stickler for me. I mean, I, I, I try to be as on time as possible, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, doing a podcast, whether it's doing. Yeah, you're right on um, time today. Well, I, I try to be, I, I understand, you know, 15, 20. Yeah, that's fine. It's mm-hmm. rock and roll time. Mm-hmm. But when you get on to, you know, a couple hours. I get nervous sometimes. Yeah. Like I had Karabi on and I think he just, 
I don't know what, like a, you forgot or something. And uh, I was like, Oh God, is he canceling on me? And so I just, you know, it happens. Robbie is just always busy doing beard maintenance. Probably. <laughs> that's what I, that's I love him. That was one of my favorite episodes, but so your solo <laughs> stuff, you, this is cool. You have a, uh, why is your, your box set? It's called the Roxy box. Shouldn't it be called the Roxy boxy? Is that, <laughs> is that maybe that, I don't know. I just, I wanted to call it that, but no, tell me about Isn't the song. Artistic that it I don't know. Rhymes, but doesn't rhyme. I don't know. The Roxy box. It's, it's almost, like I like it. No, I like badge. it. I don't know. It's, it's like the song, um, me generation. These are some pretty ballsy lyrics. You, you talk about the spoon fed brain dead. This is kind of like a startingly, a starting, what is the word? Startingly uh, accurate description of our youth. Like, uh, is that, spoon is that what it's fed, about? Or, well, the, the line is spoon fed brain dead idle population and idle instead of I D L E it's yeah. I D O L. Ah. Like, like, you know, like American idol population. Yeah. So, um, it can go both ways. And again, that's probably a little bit of lyrical influence from, uh, from JD from electric angel days, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, yeah, me generation is one of those FUs because so many people write, FUs to the older generation. This is my FU to the younger generation. You know, just stay mm-hmm. on your toes. I'm sure, like, you got the thing that every younger generation has on the older generation is that they're young. Yeah. Right. They're, they're young. They, they are, they take more chances. There's more risk. But what does the older generation have? We're a little bit like the old bull sitting up on the hill, you know, and we can just walk down. And screw y'all. And the thing is, we've got that experience. So there's a there's definitely a um, advantage to having experience as long as you're willing to take the risk on and have a bit of that attitude um, that you have when you're younger and part of the younger generation. So that's what uh, me generation basically is. It's a it's my little f you to the younger generation, and hopefully they're up for the challenge. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Well, so you do your own podcast in the trenches with Ryan Roxy. Who are some of the favorite guests that you've had on your show and who's on your bucket list? Like, would you have Johnny Depp on? Cause you've performed with him. Like I think Johnny would be great. Depp would be, be fun. Awesome That'd be, be a on. good guest to have. I, I I'd have to, you know, if Depp was to come on, I'd have to make sure that we get a special EQ'd microphone because his voice is so soft and low that uh, there would definitely be some re-EQing in post, I believe. (laughs) But but his, because what comes out of his mouth is always pretty fucking clever. He's a, he's a, he's a smart dude. He's a very kind dude and um, very giving, like as far as just generous with his time and with his talent and and honestly, one of the most prepared guys that's ever been jamming with us with Alice. But uh, yeah, Johnny's a, would be a great guest uh, as far as a bucket list guest. Um, Brian May from Queen, he's oh, on my bucket yeah. list. It. Um, I think. Uh, who else? I mean, I just I just had some really cool people that have inspired me over the years, like uh, comedians. I've had uh, Doug Stanhope. Just had him on. Um, recently and um he's super ass fucking intelligent funny 
and uh, has a lot of great stories because we're all coming from the same generation. Um, I've been able to bring some intellectuals. Yeah. Into the, like Jordan into the Peterson. Tell, I'm, I'm like halfway through that episode. Tell me about that, though, because I heard him say um, on a, another show or something where he was, ta- he was talking to Matthew McConaughey, and he had an interesting point. He said, when you're famous, it's, it's got to be difficult to distinguish whether people like you because you're famous or whether they genuinely like you. And it may be difficult for them to even figure that out. Do you have that issue sometimes that people, you feel like, are they just being nice to me because I'm the guitarist for Alice Cooper or do they genuinely like me? Does that... Uh. You know what? I, I I honestly don't think that my fame is on that level as as a McConaughey. I mean, you know, if I do the podcast and it starts getting really popular in the next uh, in the next few years, maybe we can taste that. But you know what? I think people like you or don't like you for who you are at this point. For me, it, I, I haven't gotten that gratuitous thing, but I've I've seen it with you know the guys that I have played with, like Slash or Alice. I see that there is a big you know, their household names, when you get the, to reach that name of a household status, it's it's probably really difficult to me- to deal with. Mm. Um, luckily, I, I feel that I have this kind of sweet spot of uh, popularity because I'm always popular an hour after uh, our show. But then, you know, in the morning, I can just go back to being the guy in the sweatpants, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the hotel gym, trying to, you know, trying to keep myself in shape now. So, you know, I feel that getting back to these uh, intellectuals that I've had on the in the trenches podcast, guys like Jordan Peterson was really cool to introduce to our rock and roll audience because I think rock and rollers get a sort of a bad rap sometimes um, of not being as in tune and on top of things as we are. I mean, think about it. We don't, we get to be on stage for an hour, hour and a half. So that leaves us, you know, a bunch of hours during the day to sort of observe the world. And, Mm -hmm. you know, observing the world, we see all the same crazy shit that our fans do, all the same crazy shit that goes on in the world, all the crazy political shit, all the crazy religious stuff. So we have opinions about that. And I'm happy that within the trenches, we're bringing guests that have and can share their ideas and feelings about that as well. We've had Eric Weinstein on as well. Um, we've had, um, a, and, and again, all musicians uh, are inter- intertwined with it. So if I can get, you know, a comedian and then some musicians and an intellectual and then some musicians, it all, I think that's where I can sort of establish my sort of little niche in this sort of podcast world. And it's obviously it's a, it's a whole different world for me. And I'm every single episode, I feel I'm becoming a better listener and uh, hopefully a better conversationalist. No, I, I, yeah, it's, it's a learning process. There's no doubt about it, but I'm really thankful and happy that everyone that has come on uh, the show has always been left the show saying, Hey, that was a good time. It was really inspiring. And you know, my biggest challenge is never the guest. My biggest challenge for the podcast is always uh, the person's Wi-Fi. What is their Wi-Fi signal? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah, because that's interesting. You talk about, you know, inspiring and all that. And um, you did a TED Talk. That was interesting that you talk about practice, persistence, and patience. And you talk about how you had doors slammed in your face, but you kept going. You know, people only see the success. So what were there gigs that you tried out for that people said, no, thanks? 
Oh yeah, I have plenty of those. Everyone has those stories, but that persistence is being able just to to knock that down and uh, you know keep keep going and making even if it's the wrong choice that you make musically, it's still going to help you in one way or another. That experience should help you in another sort of. Um, setting down the road. Hmm. So you can't think of, of, of things as be always being, oh my God, I, 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 I fucked up. I did this. No, you fucked up for a reason because that what, what you're fucking up right now, whatever bad decision you're going to make is going to hopefully give you the enlightenment and the uh, experience of not doing that when you get the next opportunity to, to, uh, heighten your own career or whatever, whatever it is you're doing. So I, so I do have these three P's, the practice and the persistence and the patience, but I also have, and those things you should definitely attract and you should definitely attain those things. The things that you might want to stay away from, um, what were they? Um, criticizing, comparing and copying. Mm. So those are the three C's mm. that you don't want. All right. So you have three P's that you want and the three C's and it's hard as hell to, to, to avoid those sometimes. Cause we're mm-hmm. humans, right? Yeah. We always com- We live in this comparative society. You're always looking over your shoulder. What's up? Grass is greener. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm telling you, if you, if you do your, your best not to compare, you're a much happier person. How do you do that though? Cause I can't stop comparing myself with a, I'm looking at other podcasts. I'm looking at your podcast going, he got look, Jordan look Peterson. Look at other podcasts and be inspired. Don't be jealous about okay. it. Because, go, you know, and, and it's a hard fucking thing to do. Yeah. Trust me, I'm, right? I'm, I feel you, brother. I, I mean, but the minute you start comparing, it's going, it's, it's unfair, not just to yourself, but to the person you're comparing yourself to, because you have no idea what they're journey, what their struggle, how many times their the door's been slammed in their face. That's true. They've gotten them to where they are. So, and, and the criticizing thing, that's just, you know, it, I, I have no problem when comedians and, and, and we're joking around and we're, and we're stirring the pot, you know, with, with having a, having a laugh and whatever you want to call it, um, with fun of criticizing someone, but you know what? It is still, putting a little bit of negative out there, if you can avoid it and when you really mean it and you can st- take a step back, go, you know what, why am I criticizing? Is it become, is it because of myself or is it really because they're an asshole and maybe they are an asshole, but you know what? You criticizing them being an asshole is not going to make them not be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're still going to continue to do what they do. So it doesn't really help your life. Yeah. Well, and you know what I found that, that helps me with the uh, comparing is like, is actually, you know, you'd see this other podcast and you'd be like, what, how did he get that guest? And you kind of get angry. But then it's like, if you just talk to that podcaster and you say, Hey, that's great that you got that guest and you reach out and then you've kind of become like friends with these people. And then it's like, you're kind of rooting for each other. It, and then you help each other out. You're like, Oh, you got Roxy, like Rob Lane, you know, help me get you on my podcast. Like I saw he had you on there. He's great. Yeah. Isn't he amazing? He has a great straight to video. I love his podcast and it's, he's, we're so supportive of each other and I love it. And it's like, it's great. That that kind of stuff. So I'm assuming you do the same with other musicians. Like you're all supporting each other. And I've got, I've got to tell you that doing this podcast has made me really, uh, 
try to be a better guitarist, a fellow guitarist, hmm. because guitar players don't have the best reputation for being this chummy sort of bunch. There, there hmm. is a lot of critic, uh, criticalness and critical thinking and critical viewpoints being shot, you know, back and forth, I think, or at least from my experience. Interesting. Um, whereas, whereas drummers always really most drummers, and I'm, I'm being very stereotypical right now with guitar players and drummers, but most drummers seem to be very supportive of each other. They fucking have drum lunches. They have drum huh. meetings. They have drum circles and all these, you know, all these groups. Guitar players don't really have that so much, but with in the trenches in my podcast, I've really felt this kinship with more fellow guitar players and guitarists that, that I might have felt threatened by before or been in, or, you know, or had any sort of issue with that goes away when you start talking about, you know, when you talk with them straight and you find out their experience and their journey and their um, sort of their headspace, mm -hmm. you go, shit, we are so much more alike right we are different yeah so, no I, so, I, so the, the podcast really has helped me and uh, i think we're building a cool not just guitar community but a musician community and hopefully that's awesome like, if, if, if i can actually see it through and see the end game to this we're, we're creating something that's um with the podcast that that's a lot of people can relate to because music is that common denominator and that, and it doesn't matter whether you're a comedian or whether you're uh, a, you know, a political guy or whether you're a, a religious guy or whether you're an intellectual, you all have, we, we all have music in common and we all have some sort of love for music. There's very few people that come on the podcast and say, no, nah, I don't like music. Even the ones that do, for instance, Stanhope, you know, Doug Stanhope said, yeah, I, I'm not really into music, so I, I'll do the podcast, but I'm not sure, if, you know, you'll get what you want. Hmm. He ended up knowing more about music and being more of a fan of like, he knew more about the Alice Cooper from the Inside album than I did. So I thought that was really Interesting. super cool because that's his favorite Alice record. Oh, Okay. And then, so you also, um, speaking of music and, and learning music, uh, you have, tell me about the system 12, uh, guitar method, uh, program that you have. Well, that is actually very cool that you bring that up because I, we almost didn't talk about it. Oh, of I course. Now I'm going to bring it up. Yeah. yeah. You gotta... Okay. Well, that's perfect because that's where I've laid a lot of my effort during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw it was going to come out anyway, Okay, uh, but. Obviously, when the pandemic hit, it had to come out in a quicker fashion because I saw that there was a void of, of guitar lessons being offered online that sort of covered the foundation of what I felt, you know, needed to be taught. I've taken like basically all the years of me playing guitar. I started when I was like, what? Seriously, I started, I had a guitar in my hand when I was five, but you know, I didn't play. I played like shit, but, but saying, you know, 10, 10, I started knowing that that's what I wanted to do. You know, I'm 55 now. So what is that? 45 years of guitar experience, all the little short hat, all the little life hacks, all the little guitar hacks, if you will, um, of learning the instrument I've put into this course, which you is 12 lessons. It's called the system 12. And 
you can basically get a foundation of learning the guitar, even if you've already, you know, experimented with the guitar and you know a couple first things. This is going to give you a complete sort of foundation that you can build upon in a relatively short amount of time. The course is designed to, if you really take it seriously, finish it in 12 weeks, right? Three months, you become a, you become a, uh, wait, is that four? Yeah, three, three months. You become a, um, uh, a proper um, guitar player. A okay. Real, like you're learning 12 songs, you're learning 12 riffs, you know all your notes. By the way, there's 12 notes total in music, just so you know. And um, there's actually 12 frets on a guitar until you, the guitar repeats itself. So there's a lot of things about System 12 that are interesting in the number 12. And I think we do a really good job of teaching it and the platform that it's on. It combines notation and tablature. And if those words are weird to you and you're afraid of them, you don't have to be afraid because they scroll along with the video so that whether at the end of the day, you can just look at me and I'm teaching you, or you can look at the tablature and look at the notation, or you can look at this thing called a virtual fretboard, and that'll show you almost like a video game uh -huh. how where to put your fingers. So there's so many different ways for people to learn how to play guitar and to get that foundation under their belts. And I think we did a really good job. The whole team that, that uh, we put together over at System 12 has stepped up and... Uh, yeah, if anybody's interested okay. in it, I'll put that in the Ryan notes. Roxy, uh, put the link Ryan in there. RyanRoxy.com. Yeah, okay. put up the link. And uh, I, I, that's because that's my whole thing is like, I would love to have more people play guitar, pass that torch of rock and roll on to the next generation or to the next person. It doesn't have to be someone that's younger. If you're older and you're thinking about, you know, man, I really wanted to learn guitar, but I never took the time. Well, guess what? You got the time. You're probably locked yeah. in somewhere right now, or if you've had the time, and you can make the time, because this only, you know, it really doesn't take that long, 12 lessons. And if you take it really seriously, 12 weeks, if you want to extend it a little bit, that's fine too. So, you know, with System 12, as well as the, the podcast community, we're building something, I think, that can... Uh, really help and inspire. That's really cool. So do you feel like at this point in your life, you've achieved like all your dreams? And I mean, cause it seems, I would say you've made it and do you feel like you're happier now that you have all the success that you've completed or were you happier kind of like before you made it with that possibility of like what, what can happen or have you just been happy this whole time? No, I've, I've really learned in the last it's been a while now that I've, I've actually really appreciated it, hmm. but I've learned how to appreciate the ride. You know, I, I say this yeah. thing called enjoy the ride and the, the ride is that journey because I, I can hear what you're saying, uh, back in my twenties, you know, and early thirties, I, I hear myself, I see myself always looking to the next, what's on right. the next, not being content with where you're at. And, I mean, Jesus, all you have to do is, is watch the last dance on Netflix to, to, you know, to see that, man, you better enjoy the ride. You better enjoy all the success that you have because you do not want at the end of this journey, looking back on it and going, I'm miserable. No, you want to enjoy while you're creating and, and celebrate the small little victories, but keep the end goal in mind always do something every single day that's small that can get you towards that goal and be happy about it 
but just know that that end goal is going to happen. And you asked me if I was happy with everything. I appreciate you saying that I've, I've made it. I in no way think at this point that I've actually made it. I'm very happy of what I've been able to accomplish, hmm. but there's still so much more that I want to. You know, what else do you want to do? I want to get as many people playing guitar as possible. And System 12 is just the beginning of that. I want to get um, as many people inspired by the podcast, by, by guests of what they say so that their viewpoints can inspire you and, and inspire the listener. Um, I want to continue, <laughs> if possible, to tour as long as possible, especially, you know, with such a iconic legend is Alice Cooper, as long as he's up for it. And he seems like he's up for it as you know, every time we talk, he's like, dude, I can hardly wait to get back. It's like, I need to get back out on the road and I feel the same way. So we can do more tours there. And then what happens, you know, um, later, let continue to play music, continue to, to put out stuff and maybe, you know, help this. Cause if, you know, this, this, younger person who's thinking, Oh my God, why, why would I try to play music for a living? It's so competitive. It's so hard. Well, guess what? Everything in life that you do is going to be competitive and uh-huh. hard if you make it, if you look at it that way. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's you like, what does Jim Carrey say? He's like, you can fail at doing something you hate. So you might as well fail at doing something that you love. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's great. You know? And, um, I feel that, you know, Every single day, there's some guy or gal that looks at the guitar and they say, you know what? Today's the day I want to try it. And it doesn't matter. Again, they could be young or they could be older, but there's someone that's looking at that guitar and saying, you know what? I think today's the day I can try it and I will make it. And I want to make that easier for people to do. Mm -hmm. And 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 I can inspire anyone else to uh, pick up guitar and learn it and uh, make a living out of it because of my story, then that's the easiest gig I think I've ever had. And uh, actually most meaningful as well. That's awesome. Uh, Well, I do like to end each episode with a charity. Is there uh, one that you want to promote here at the end or one that you've worked with in the past? Yeah, I I do. I really feel that uh, this charity has helped out. And I, I worked with it um, when I lived in Los Angeles in the very beginning days, and they've done so much work since then, um, and they've they've accomplished so much. What they do is they take musicians, actors, artists, uh, creators, and they'll put them in a situation where they go to hospitals and basically teach their craft to. Uh, either terminal patients or uh, people that are in there in the hospital for long-term care, they'll, they'll give them their craft and, and either entertain them with it or they'll teach them how to do it and basically provide such a great um, feeling of, of worth for, for, the people that are kind of stuck in the hospitals, mm. the patients that are stuck in the hospitals and that, that charity that they've been doing uh, for years and years is called the art of Elysium. And I believe it's the art of Elysium.org. Okay. Check it. Jennifer Howe runs it. And uh, I was with them early, early days. We would go to uh, uh, Los Angeles hospital 
on sunset and where the hell is it way down on sunset and we would basically just go in the icu and um anybody that wanted to hear a song we would uh, basically be be walking around from uh recovery room to recovery room or long term room to long term room you know huh. playing our our hits and our wow. our songs and you know the, the 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 international set list if you will That's one, one great. of the highlights was that was uh I got to play um, Wonderwall by Oasis with a uh, very impromptu um, jam by um, Joaquin Phoenix came and sang the lyrics to it because he wow. was there, uh, you know, he was there entertaining. Is he a good singer? Just, I've never heard him sing. Well, he was, <laughs> he was singing. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's Joaquin Phoenix. He could do whatever he want. I'd be impressed. Yeah, he, I mean, he, He's an amazing actor. He was, he was, he's obviously an Oasis fan. So I was playing okay. the song and he just, he, he heard the song from another room. He goes running in and he starts singing it. And I'm like, oh, well, this is even better. And you recognize him and you're like, holy shit. Like that's walking. Or is it, are you like one of those LA people that you just kind of, you kind of pretend like it's no big deal. Cause I, I I'm like the opposite. No, no, I'm such I'm, a fanboy. Like I, <laughs> I fanboy out. You yeah. Should, you should, if you see me on the podcast every once in a while, you know, I was, de there's definitely people like, you know, when we had Jordan or Eric Weinstein on or, you know, or fuck it. Um, like Steve Stevens came on the podcast. Yeah. And, and, and I, uh, but, you know, even though I, I view Steve as a friend as well, I, you know, I'm so influenced by his guitar playing. I think he's such an amazing player. He is that, amazing. The fanboy comes out of you at any time. I mean, I I remember Tommy Lee saying that one time. He said, "If, if you're not a fanboy, then what the fuck are you in this business?" For? Yeah, I agree. This business because I be I was a fan first, and now you know people are fans of me, and that's great. It's amazing. Because you always have to have someone that inspires you. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter who. I mean, God, I had Rick Nielsen on. I was completely fanboying out. Are you That's kidding awesome. Me? Here's the guy that basically influenced so many of the songs that I've been trying to sort of, you know, uh, not copy, but pay homage <laughs> to. Pay homage. There you over go. Over the years. Very cool. Cheap trick. You know. All right. Well, thank you, Ryan. This has been amazing. There's a lot of stuff I didn't get to, so you'll have to come back another time and we'll Let's go over more. Part two. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. You're, you're, you're really easy to talk to, Chuck. And, thank you. Uh, it's it's very very uh, pleasurable, and and hopefully your audience will uh, cross pollinate over to in the trenches. Yeah. And, Check out uh, some of your episodes. You got a lot of great, uh, a lot bigger names than I than I get sometimes. So it's amazing. Well, hey, man. And some of us are the same. One hand washes the other. One yeah. hand washes the other. Both hands wash the feet. My friend Weed says that, and I repeat it as many, as often as I can. But I like uh, that. If there's anybody in your audience that uh, has that uh, desire to, has that intent to want to learn guitar, um, oh, just yes. go over to check out the System 12. And all the, all these links and all that stuff is at ryanroxy.com. I'll That's put that in the notes. Perfect. All right. All right thanks, Ryan. Chuck, thanks, buddy. See you How later. Bye-bye. See you, man. I learned so much, like Jesse James Dupree auditioning for Slash the Snake Pit. That could have been interesting. Uh, fun conversation with Ryan Roxy. Make sure to check out his website for all the links to the things we discussed today, including his podcast, In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy, his 12-step guitar method, and his music and tour dates. Uh, you can check out my website as well. It's got links to all my other episodes, social media, and articles featuring my podcast. And again, make sure to subscribe to the show so that you can keep up with future episodes. 
If you want to support the show, your likes, comments, and shares all help with that, uh, with the algorithms these tech companies have. So many of you have already done that. And I appreciate that very much. Uh, I'm just a one guy show here. And so I can only grow with your support. So for that, I thank you immensely. Have a great rest of your day. And remember to shoot for the moon.